Chapter 7 of One Thing Needful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One Thing Needful by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 7 The New Cinderella. July, with its roses and lilies, blossoming limes and long sultry days, and lingering sunsets late into the dewy night, was over. It was August, and though summer was still lovely in the land, the summer evenings were shortening, the roses were waning a little, as to the limitless profusion of bloom, while here and there those flowers which are the harbingers of autumn began to show in the castle gardens, gaudy dahlias, old-world hollyhocks, flaming sunflowers, staring at the blue sky with their great round brown faces and ragged yellow nightcaps against a background of grey stone wall. Stella's new life had begun. It was verily a new life, so entirely different from the old one that it seemed to the child as if she had died and been born again, in the same place but with another personality. And yet, though she still had her abode in Lashmar Castle, it could hardly be said that it was the same place as that which had been her home in the lifetime of Hubert, Lord Lashmar. She lived in other rooms. She looked out of other windows, at an utterly dissimilar prospect. She had not entered the library, or those adjoining rooms in which she had once been so happy since her benefactor's death. The gardens about which she had once roamed as freely as the butterflies were now a closed world for her. She had no more right to be there than the coachman's children, or the housekeeper's little niece, and not one of those well-behaved little persons would have presumed to enter her ladyship's garden. She lived in the servants' quarters now, and looked out of windows which all opened upon the stable-yard, a great stony desert whose only picturesque feature was the pump, with its stone basin round which a coachman, with the love of the beautiful, had planted some nasturtiums. Those nasturtiums were almost the only flowers that Stella saw in that month of August. She was learning to know her place, her place as allotted and appointed by Lady Lashmar, and that place was the place of an under-housemaid. There were eleven housemaids at Lashmar Castle. That had been the orthodox number as long as the oldest inhabitant of Lashmar village could remember. It was supposed that by no less a staff could the castle be scrubbed and swept and dusted as it should be. There were three upper housemaids, each of whom had supreme command upon her particular floor. She was, as it were, captain of that deck. Then came the five second housemaids, two for the ground floor with its spacious state apartments and numerous sitting-rooms, two for the first floor, and which included her ladyship's suite and the new lord's suite, and all the important visitors' rooms, and one for the upper story, which was given over to rarely used bachelors' rooms and rat-warrants. Lastly, there were the three drudges who fetched and carried water and coals, made the fires and cleaned the grates, slaves who were treated as the Israelites in Egypt before the advent of Moses. Betsy had been reduced to the ranks of the eleven. She was one of the second housemaids, and her province was the first floor, where she was under the special supervision of her Aunt Barker, 
who had a room of her own in an obscure corner behind her ladyship's suite. One of those curious little rooms, such as in Hampton Court Palace, are described as the King's Closet or the Queen's Oratory. Under Betsy's eye, Stella was to be trained to all the duties of an upper housemaid. She was not to go through the baser drudgeries, the water-drawing and coal-carrying, the black-lead brush and scouring paper. She was to be spared that rude apprenticeship, out of deference to the dead lord's fancy. Nay, should she prove especially teachable, and handy with her needle, she might eventually escape housework altogether and be admitted to the Holy of Holies, personal attendance upon her ladyship. "'You are getting short of breath and unwieldy, Barker,' said Lady Lashmar. "'By the time that child is seventeen or eighteen, I shall want somebody to run about for me.' Barker shook her head and pursed up her lips. "'I don't think Miss Stella will ever suit you in that way, my lady,' she began. "'How often have I told you that she is not to be called Miss Stella?' I don't think Stella would ever do for a servant, my lady. His poor lordship spoiled her too much. She knows such a lot, and she frets day and night about her Greek and Latin, over history and geography, and poetry and such like. She starts up in the middle of the night sometimes, sobbing, as if her heart would break, and saying that she is forgetting everything his lordship taught her. And then she'll go over a lot of gibberish which she says is Greek or Latin, though I'm sure it don't sound like anything half so sensible. I don't believe she'll ever make a good servant, my lady. Her life has been begun the wrong way." "'She is young enough to begin life again,' replied her ladyship sternly. "'The greatest blunder of the present day is the over-education of the masses, a blunder which is producing a race of young women who all want to be doctors and lawyers instead of wives and mothers and a race of young men who would sooner starve in a paradise of pen and ink than be prosperous butchers and bakers. I look to you, Barker, to get all foolish nonsense out of that girl's head. If I hear any more of her fretting, I shall send her to the workhouse." After this Barker could say no more. She knew the iron temper of that mistress whom she had served in all faithfulness and submission for the last fifteen years. Stella suffered her new life meekly enough, but almost every hour of it was suffering. Reared as she had been, amongst delicatest, most gracious surroundings, by a man whose original refinement had been spiritualized by illness and seclusion, every detail of this outer world of the servants' hall and still-room jarred upon her sensitive nerves. The loud voices, the everlasting clatter, the quarreling and jeering—jeering which was meant for wit all these revolted the keen young spirit. Had she been a woman, she might have put on the armor of philosophy. She might have retired within herself, lived her own life of quietness and contemplation amidst the bluster of these vulgar lives. But she was a child, and had not learned stoicism. She was a child and depended upon externals for her joy or sorrow, and all things in her external life had been made bitterness to her at that time when her heart-wounds were still fresh. Under the happiest circumstances she would have been broken-hearted by the loss of her friend and father, but as it was all the conditions of her life intensified her sense of loss. 
She had been banished from those pretty rooms in which she had lived for five joyous years. All her cherished treasures, her benefactor's gifts of toys and trinkets and ornaments, had been taken away from her. And, worst loss of all, her books had been taken also. Those books, which had been as gates opening into other worlds, the books which Lashmar had taught her to love and to understand. The banishment from that Eden of her childhood had been effected by the dowager in the briefest, most offhand manner. So soon as Stella was well enough to leave her room, Lady Lashmar sent her to the still-room. She was to live there with the upper housemaids, and she was to sleep in the second housemaid's dormitory. Having pronounced this sentence, her ladyship locked the outer door and put the key of the tower-rooms into her pocket. "'I shall arrange by and by what use we can make of those two rooms,' she said. "'No doubt they will be wanted when his lordship fills the house for the shooting.' Hubert Lashmar had been no sportsman, and there had not been a battue in the Lashmar preserve since his father's time. Victorine had gone out with a couple of spaniels and a keeper when he happened to be at home in October, but for the most part the pheasants had had no enemies except the poachers. The servants were beginning to perk themselves already at the idea of big shooting parties and liberal veils. So Stella was banished from her tower among the treetops, her casements overlooking dale and river, wood and hillside. She was much too unhappy to think about her possessions, her pretty things as she had called them, so she made no moan at this off-hand confiscation of her property. It was afterwards, when she found herself sitting in a corner of the still-room, leaning her head against the wall, hearing the chatter of the maids as it were afar off, it was then that she thought of her books, and asked Betsy to fetch them for her. Good-natured Betsy was almost as downhearted as her charge at the sad change that had come over both their lives. For Betsy, as Miss Stella's personal attendant, had been somebody in the household, and had done very much as she liked. As a second housemaid she was nobody, and subject to be ordered about by her superior officer. She ran off to the tower, found it locked and then went to her Aunt Barker as the only safe means of communication with her ladyship. "'Might Miss Stella have her books out of the tower-room?' asked Barker an hour later, when she was taking out her ladyship's dinner-gown, while Celestine dressed her ladyship's hair. "'Certainly not,' replied the dowager decisively. "'Reading for a young person in her position is only another name for idleness. If she read her Bible and her hymn-book, that will be quite as much reading as she will have leisure for. Middleham tells me that she has hardly an idea of plain needlework." Middleham was the chief of the housemaids, the oldest servant at Lashmar, older even in service than the housekeeper or the chef, both of whom had grown old-fashioned in the same employment. Middleham was seven-and-forty, and had lived at the castle since she was twelve. She was an awful personage, with a bony figure and grey hair. She could read a little by spelling out the difficult words, but she had forgotten how to write, and she was proud of it. "'I left school when I was ten, she said. "'Nowadays the girls go to school up to fourteen, and come away stuck-up minxes that look down upon their parents, and are no more use in their homes than fine ladies. First standard, indeed!' 
The only standard in my day was a broom and a scrubbing-brush. When a girl had learnt to be handy with those, she was a help to her parents. Middleham was a superior needlewoman. Those great bony hands of hers could do fine stitching that looked as if done by fairy fingers. She had sole charge of the rich stores of house linen, finest that the looms of Belfast could produce, table linen into every piece of which the armorial bearings of the Lashmars were woven. Under the cold gray eye of Middleham, Stella made her first essays in plain needlework. I declare the child hardly knows how to hold her needle," said the head housemaid. Lord Lashmar did not like to see me work," faltered Stella tearfully. Middleham groaned aloud. "'You'll have to work now, and if you don't learn to work, well, you'll have to be sent to the workhouse,' said Middleham, and then looked round triumphantly as one who had made a pun. The other housemaids all laughed dutifully. They feared and hated Middleham, who was a fierce foe to followers, and all walking out. It was popularly supposed that she had never walked out with anyone herself, that her innate grimness had kept followers at a distance. That, like Shakespeare's royal virgin, she had ever walked in maiden meditation, fancy-free. And, it may be observed, that at the time that lovely line was penned, good Queen Bess must have been about as grim a personage as Middleham. Oh, how dull the life was! how dreary and monotonous, despite its clatter! The great dinner in the servants' hall, the steaming joints, the monster pudding, the all-pervading smell of beer! The male underlings all clustered at the end of the table, having their own conversation and their own whispered jokelets, digging each other in the ribs, exploding with full mouths into foolish, spluttering laughter. Then the long afternoon! sitting at work, hemming a kitchen-cloth, perhaps, by the window that looked into the stony yard, where all the summer air was scented with stables. How the child pictured the park and the river, the loved and lovely river on which she and Lashmar had been wont to spend long summer days, with books and sketching-block, dreamy days, idle days, sweet, sweet days! She could see the shining wherry, with its luxurious crimson cushions, its sheepskin mat, its boxes and artful contrivances for picnic luncheon or afternoon tea. She wondered whether the new Lord Lashmar was enjoying himself in that boat on this exquisite afternoon. She looked up at the summer sky, the only thing of beauty which she could see from her dungeon, a sky of deepest sapphire, with fleecy cloudlets dancing gaily in the blue. "'I do declare you have not done six stitches in as many minutes,' said Middleham. I have been watching you." The pale pinched face reddened, and the needle went a little quicker over the harsh fabric. Middleham resumed her study of a bad place in one of the best tablecloths. These two had the spacious still-room all to themselves this afternoon. It was cleaning-day on all the floors of the castle, a universal scrubbing and polishing, which kept the ten housemaids at work till tea-time. It was only Middleham who could afford to sit still after having given her orders. She would walk round the ground-floor rooms by and by, just before tea, and spy out grains of dust overlooked in obscure corners, or pieces of furniture that had not been properly polished. At five o'clock a bell sounded, 
and the first and second housemaids came swarming in to tea. The upper servants had their meals in the housekeeper's room. The drudges, under-housemaids, scullery and kitchen and vegetable maids, herded in a den of their own, a cool stony room off one of the kitchens. Barker was free of housekeeper's room and still room. And she had the extra privilege of having her tea carried up to her own little nest whenever she was so minded. How Stella hated that noisy tea-hour, the foolish jokes and laughter, the cruel chaff for which she sometimes afforded the object, the great metal pots which gave the tea a tinny flavor, the mountains of thick bread and butter, the fishy smell of periwinkles or shrimps, the litter of cresses and other green meat, without which tea was unpalatable to the housemaids. It was the hour at which they all unbent with elbows on the table and tea poured into saucers, the hour at which they talked and laughed the loudest. They had all forgotten their dead lord, and were full of anticipations about the hijinks that would be held at the castle now Victorian was master. "'I don't suppose there'll be much of a change yet a while,' said Barker, who happened to be taking her tea in the still-room. "'His lordship is going away in a fortnight.' He has been appointed first secretary of legation at Vienna. "'You might have told us that before,' retorted Middleham, who was jealous of Barker's superior opportunities. "'I only heard it this morning when I was waiting on her ladyship. His lordship came into her room with an open letter in his hand and showed it to her. "'I must be off in a fortnight,' says he. I could see that she was very vexed.' That was all very well when you were a younger son, she says, but I don't see the necessity for it now. Do you suppose I want to see the world any less because I am called Lord Lashmar? says he. What a queer old mother you are! What a queer old mother! echoed a chorus of housemaids with Homeric laughter. Fancy calling her ladyship a queer old mother! He's a rare one for cheek, is Master Victorian. He's your right sort for a lord. He'll stamp him down wherever he goes. Vienna has been the dream of my life, he says, and then goes whistling out of the room, as light-hearted as you like, leaving her ladyship blacker than thunder. Stella sat amidst their babble, with no relish for steaming tea in a thick crockery cup, and with a loathing of shrimps and periwinkles. Afternoon tea with Lord Lashmar had been a poem the quaint old silver teapot, silver beaten so thin and enriched with such delicate repoussé work, the semi-transparent cups, the dainty cream-jug and toy sugar-tongs, the wafer biscuits and bread and butter, the cool sweet atmosphere of an exquisitely ordered room, the flowers, the pictures, the books, the all-surrounding beauty. And she had exchanged these things, and the dear love that made them sweetest, for the company of these vulgar women who despised and laughed at her. Betsy was kind, and the others did not mean to be unkind. They did not beat or pinch or starve her, but they were powerless to comprehend the workings of that young soul. They saw the red swollen eyelids and called her a crybaby. They pointed the finger of derision at her because she was unskilled and clumsy in duties that were so easy to them because she could not hem a duster expeditiously or polish a mahogany table. And again and again came the reproach against the dead. What a pity Lord Lashmar had brought her up to be such a little fool! 
they had not spared her feelings in their talk of the dead lord. They had freely discussed the details of the accident, how his lordship had been thrown head foremost on the hard high road, and had broken his neck. It was instantaneous death, they said, and how Stella had fallen more luckily upon the grassy border of the road, and had been brought home unconscious with concussion of the brain, and then, before she awoke from her stupor, fever had set in, symptomatic fever, the doctor called it, and she had been very bad indeed. But old Mr. Verner and the groom had escaped easily, the groom with a few bruises and a good shaking, and Mr. Verner, who fell on the top of him without a scratch. Stella asked what had become of Mr. Verner, longing for him as for the only friend left her. But she was told that he had left directly after the funeral, to go home to his own people, as it was supposed. There was not even so much comfort as this left to her. Night was worst of all. She slept in a little bed in the spacious dormitory given up to the five second housemates. It was a large bare room, forming part of a special servant's wing which had been added to the castle fifty years before, and which the builder had made as unbeautiful as in him lay. And builders have large capabilities in that line. It was a long, whitewashed room, like the common room of a debtor's prison. The windows looked into a stony well, on the other side of which was the laundry. There was not a tree nor a leaf within sight. Even ivy had refused to grow in that vault-like atmosphere. And to keep up the prison-like idea, the windows were all guarded with iron bars, lest, peradventure, the followers of the housemaid should break in and elope with their ladies, like the knights in border ballads. Stella was sent to bed nightly at eight o'clock, sent to bed in the sweet summer gloaming, while the birds were singing so happily in the woods, and the flowers were only just beginning to close. Middleham was inexorable as to this hour of departure. At eight o'clock you go, or I'll know the reason why. And at eight o'clock Stella crept wearily up the shadowy staircase and took off her tear-stained black frock and said her prayers, long tearful prayers, and laid herself down upon the hard little bed. Not to sleep. She was too unhappy to sleep easily, and she knew that at half-past ten the five would come, like a band of noisy fiends let loose from pandemonium, and would talk of their Sunday clothes and their young men, and chaff each other, and perhaps quarrel with each other for a good hour, before slumber fell upon the fold. She would lie with closed eyes, trying not to hear, yet with those delicate ears of hers listening involuntarily. They were good-natured honest girls for the most part, modest withal, according to their lights no more frivolous or empty-headed than a band of schoolgirls in a fashionable seminary. But their talk, with its monotonous repetitions, its silly jokes, was torture to the sensitive child. The hourly suffering of her days, sleepless nights, and loss of appetite soon had their effects. Stella began to look very ill, worse than she had looked even when she first got up from her bed of fever. Betsy was anxious about her took her aside and questioned her. Why did she look so miserable? Stella burst into tears and unburdened her soul. She was altogether unhappy. She hated the still-room, she hated Middleham, but most of all she hated the room where she slept and the chatter of the maids. "'I hardly ever sleep,' 
she added piteously. I lie awake all night waiting to see the daylight between the iron bars." "'That's very bad,' said Betsy. "'We must see what can be done.' She went off to her aunt, and the two women put their heads together. There was very little use in appealing to her ladyship. Barker knew the state of her feelings towards her stepson's protégé. There was a little room on the floor over the servants' dormitories, a floor in the roof, which was mostly given over to linen closets and box-rooms, a room that had been occupied once by a valet. It was very small and had a sloping ceiling. But the dormer window commanded a sidelong peep of the park, just about as much as that fine view of the sea put forward by a hardened lodging-housekeeper. And Betsy, who knew her charge better than anyone else, fancied that this little room would be as a haven of rest to Stella. James, the footman, who was a handy youth, might put up a shelf or two for her, and by and by perhaps Betsy would be able to get a few of those books—lesson-books, poetry-books, story-books, for which the child's sickened heart longed so sorely. The only possible consolation where all human comfort was lost. There were a neat little iron bedstead and the necessary furniture, all of the plainest, barest, most uninteresting order, as duly made and provided for a subject race. But when Betsy took the child up to the little room under the tiles, and told her that she could have it for her very own, Stella burst into hysterical tears of delight. "'Oh, how good of you!' she cried. "'How sweet of you, Betsy! Somebody loves me still, then!' "'Of course I love you, you foolish little thing. Whoever said I didn't? Only I daren't disobey her ladyship. But some day, perhaps, I shall be able to get hold of a few of those books of yours that you've been fretting about.' "'Will you, dearest Betsy? What, my Latin grammar, and the Greek one, too, and my Virgil, and the Greek fairy-tales, and the Lady of the Lake? That was his last Christmas present. Such a lovely book!' They are all my very own, Betsy. He gave them to me. Her ladyship is a thief if she takes them away." "'No, no, Stella. You must not talk like that. A little adopted thing like you, a poor little waif and stray, can have no real right to anything in a great house like this. Only, if poor Lord Lashmar gave them to you, it is natural that you should fancy they are your own, and I'll see what I can do concluded Betsy vaguely. She brought Stella half a dozen books that night in her apron. The key of the tower-rooms had been given up to Middleham, in order that those rooms might be duly swept and dusted, and Betsy had got the key from that austere personage by sheer artifice, and had made her raid upon the books—Virgil and two grammars, the Greek fairy-tales and Chapman's Iliad, and a volume of Wordsworth. The Lady of the Lake was a richly illustrated quarto with splendid binding. Betsy could not venture to remove so handsome and ostensible a book, lest my lady should come on a visit of inspection, and that keen eye of hers should note the disappearance of the volume. The others were all shabby little books which had seen hard usage. Stella cried over these recovered treasures, in her tiny room with her dormer casement looking towards the treetops and the stars. Her mind was refreshed and soothed by the peaceful solitude of her poor little room. Here there was no coarse laughter, there were no cruel taunts. She could hear the owls hooting in the park, 
the dogs baying in the stable-yard. That was all. She seemed to be far away from everybody, and as she was altogether fearless she loved her solitude. And now this child of eleven years old set herself with heroic patience to carry on unaided and alone the education which had been so cruelly interrupted by that stern foe to progress, death. With her books and pen and ink and two or three poor little ends of candle, garnered for her day by day by the faithful Betsy, Stella sat late into the night working at Greek and Latin, happy even when her studies were driest, at the thought that she was carrying on the work her benefactor had begun. "'When I see him in heaven, I shall be able to tell him what I have done,' she said to herself. Her theology was of the simple, confiding kind, which has grown old-fashioned even for little children. That fair future world was very real to her ardent fancy. She could picture the woodland walks of a paradise, where it was always summer, and where she would meet Hubert Lashmar with a strange light upon his face, like the golden glory round the infant saviour's head in the famous Lashmar Raphael that marvellous picture which she had so often gazed upon by her benefactor's side. Those nightly studies, the reposeful solitude of her remote little garret, had a calming influence upon her spirits. She was less unhappy now in the daytime, having her books to look forward to at night, knowing that she was not lapsing into ignorance, not becoming like those young women with whom she was obliged to live. She had her daydreams now, as she sat in the still-room window, inhaling odors of stables, and hemming an everlasting procession of tea-cloths. She had her dream of the day when she would be grown up, and well-educated, and would be able to write books, like old Gabriel Verner, and when she might earn enough money to have a tiny cottage of her own upon the banks of the Avon, and to have honest Betsy to live with her. That was her chief daydream. She had fancies of stories that she might write, stories of beautiful fatal creatures like Helen, or devoted wives like Andromache, or wicked treacherous women like Clytemenstra. That busy brain of hers had already begun to weave the multicolored web of fiction, albeit her pen had not yet essayed to give those dreamings a tangible shape. Lashmar had told her of an author, a woman who had reaped thousands and a lasting renown by a simple story of village life, by reason of her power to dive deep down into the mystery of human nature, to fathom the strange depths of the heart of man, just as Homer did in those dim days when poetry began. She, Stella, sighed not for thousands, only for that lowly little cottage by the river, and a garden and a summer-house, and plenty of books and candles to light the long evenings, and kind Betsy for her companion, they two alone together and happy. Lord Lashmar, the new Lord Victorian, had left for Vienna without ever having looked on the little serf who had once been his brother's darling. He was very sorry to have lost poor dear Lash, as he called him, but he felt not the slightest interest in Lash's latest fad. Lash had always been full of fads poor dear boy! Of course, her ladyship would do all that was best and wisest for the child. "'You'll make a sort of semi-genteel waiting-maid of her, I suppose,' he said lightly. "'Have her taught to clean your laces and make your caps, whenever the day comes that you take to caps.' 
"'Perhaps that will not be till I am a grandmother, Victor,' she answered, smiling fondly at her beloved. "'When you have a wife and children, I shall feel myself verily a dowager, and then, I suppose, I must take to caps. By the by, dear, I saw Clarice last week. They have come back to the hall. Indeed, puffed up by her new dignity as a presented young person, I suppose, answered Lashmar. No, she was just as sweet as ever, quite simple and childlike. I am told she was one of the prettiest debutantes of the year. The newspapers all said as much. The newspapers are always ready to puff a girl whose father counts his fortune by hundreds of thousands," sneered Lashmar. "'I don't think the Brougham people have quite made up their mind whether Job Danebrook is worth one million or half a dozen. But they are all agreed that his father wheeled a barrow. Now I think both you and I retain an old-fashioned prejudice in favour of good blood.' "'There is some very good blood in Clarice Danebrook's veins, Victor. You forget that her mother was a Montmorency. One thin trickle of blue blood cannot purify the plebeian vat, mother. I know very well what you are hinting at. Clarice is sweet, Clarice is pretty, Clarice has been well brought up, and had a genteel mother. She is, moreover, an only daughter, and will inherit two or three millions. She is one of those exceptionally good matches which you may count upon your fingers. The Lashmars are rich, but they might be richer. Would rise to a much higher note in the social scale if they possessed those superfluous millions. Fabulous wealth is the thing people worship nowadays. It is not enough to be rich. A man to be honoured and talked about must be inordinately rich. Yes, I perfectly recognise the truth of all that. But all the same. I am not going to be maneuvered into a marriage with Clarice Stainbrook. You can trot her out by and by if you like, and if I fall in love with her, I'll ask her to marry me. If I don't, I won't, were she worth the wealth of Aladdin. Do you suppose I would ever wish you to marry anyone you could not love? said his mother, masking her batteries. I know you would only choose the best and worthiest. You are too proud to make one of those wretched matches by which some of your order have degraded their rank of late years. I should never fear anything of that kind from you." "'Well, no, I am not quite an idiot,' answered Lashmar. "'As for Clarice, she is a sweet little thing, and I am really fond of her,' continued her ladyship placidly. "'But I don't think she is quite good enough for you. She has wealth, but she has not rank, and there is, as you say, always that unlucky tradition of the wheelbarrow. "'Dear old mother, we always think alike,' said Victorian, bending down to kiss the dowager's broad brow. His eyes sparkled with suppressed laughter. He knew her so well, knew that she had made up her mind that he was to marry Clarice Danebrook and no other, knew that to this end she had made much of the damsel, and been civil to her very commonplace mother, and her sternly plebeian father. For no other than an interested motive would the great Lady Pitlin's daughter have cultivated the society of a young person of vulgar lineage. Yea, albeit a thin streak of the Montmorency blood had qualified the coarseness of the Danebrooks. Victorian laughed at his mother's manoeuvres, laughed most of all at the idea that she should think herself able to throw dust in his eyes, 
and he held himself in reserve for the future. He meant to do just what he liked with his life. He would have held himself free to marry a beggar-maid, like King Kofechua, had he so pleased. But he was not at all the kind of young man to feel drawn towards beggar-maids. He was worldly to the core, had been brought up to consider everything from the worldling's standpoint. He meant, when his time should come, to marry well, brilliantly if possible, to make such a match as should double his present importance in the world. No, he did not think that Clarice was good enough. Mere millions would not suffice. People would want to be told who his wife was, and for that question to be answered fitly she should be the daughter of a duke. It was October when the new Lord Lashmar came back to the castle, with a chosen company of bachelor friends, old comrades of Eton and Oxford. His lordship came only for a flying visit, to see his mother, to shoot the pheasants, and to look about him a little. Lordship at one-and-twenty could not be supposed to care for a long residence beside that broad reach of the Avon, amidst the decay of autumn woods. When the pheasants were thinned, Lashmar would be off again to Paris or Vienna, as the case might be. He affected to hate London and London society. It lacked the glitter and ease of continental life. He was not going to that dreary barrack in Grosvenor Square until he was obliged, which would not be before February, when Parliament would reopen and he would go to take his seat in the House of Lords. The dowager was at Lashmar to receive her son and his friends. She had not left the castle since her stepson's death. Her presence had pervaded the mansion like a dark and brooding cloud, or at least it seemed so to Stella, who shivered even at the distant sound of that voice. Not once had they two met face to face since the day when those cruel lips told the child of her bereavement but it was enough misery for Stella to know that the stern ruler of the house was within its walls, to hear her deep-toned voice from afar. Lady Lashmar was not alone when her son arrived. She did not want his house to seem empty and dismal after the brightness of his continental surroundings. She had summoned other two dowagers, one frisky and one strong-minded, to bear her company. The strong-minded dowager, Lady Clan Alister, had two strong-minded daughters, and these also were bidden. Their presence made an excuse for having Clarice Danebrook continually at the castle. The weather was lovely. It was not too cold for lawn-tennis. A very feeble cousin of Miss Danebrook, who was reading for his divinity examination, made a fourth. The dowagers had their books and newspapers, their work-bags, and that everlasting occupation of letter-writing which holds all society in bondage. The frivolous dowager was the famous Oriana, Lady Hillborough, who had been young and a fashionable beauty when William the Fourth was king. She still wore her hair exactly as she had worn it at that period. But it was not the same hair. She had worn out a good many of those golden tresses, and had spent a small fortune at Truffet's since the sailor king had been laid in the royal charnel-house. She dressed as youthfully now as she had dressed then, and skipped about a room as gaily, rearranging the furniture in that bright airy way of hers, famed for her exquisite taste in the composition of those pictures which fashionable drawing-rooms now offer to the enlightened eye. "'My dear, you should have a group of large palms at the other end of your room 
she exclaimed, surveying Lady Lashmar's morning-room through her binoculars. "'You have nothing to break the straight line of your end wall. Yes, of course, I know, those pictures of yours are priceless, and the palms will hide them. But you will get the idea of distance, vagueness, don't you know? The effect will be much finer.' And then Lady Hilborough wheeled round and surveyed Clarice coolly, deliberately, through her glasses, which made her own eyes look as the eyes of a giant to those who happened to see them through those magnifying pebbles. Clarice was standing by the window, wondering whether she was to be presented to the newcomer or to be ignored, which she would have infinitely preferred. "'What a sweet child!' said Lady Hilborough in a loud whisper when she had stared for about three minutes. "'Introduce her to me.' Lady Lashmar obeyed, and Oriana took Clarice by the hand, made another deliberate inspection at nearer range, and then kissed the girl enthusiastically on both cheeks. "'I delight in pretty people,' she exclaimed. "'Of course you know you are a pretty child. Some people try to keep girls of your age from finding out their own prettiness, but it's all wasted trouble.' If a girl were brought up on a desert island, she would know all about her good looks. She would see herself reflected in some pool, like what's-his-name, in the Greek story, Jonquil. "'I think you must mean Narcissus, Lady Hilborough,' said one of the strong-minded Miss McAllisters. "'What does it matter, my dear? A Narcissus and a Jonquil are much the same thing,' answered Oriana, who was not learned, and rarely read anything except the newspapers. Lashmar and his friends arrived in time for dinner. He had spent a couple of nights in London, had arranged to meet his guests at the station and to bring them down with him. There were two newly-fledged cavalry subalterns, a younger son who was going in for a political career and fancied himself an embryo canning, another younger son who was preparing himself for the family living, and a young man who was nobody in particular but who was much better read and more amusing than any of the other four. They were all young, and they were a noisy crew. Clarice was afraid of them, and they were afraid of the two strong-minded Miss McAllisters, who were intense politicians and great upon the Eastern question, with the complexities whereof they assailed the masculine mind at every opportunity. So there was a tacit avoidance of the feminine society provided by her ladyship. "'I thought you would have liked to find some nice girls here, Lashmar,' she said to her son reproachfully, after he and his friends had been out shooting all day, and in the smoking-room all the evening, while the Miss McAllisters, who scorned accomplishments as futile, had sat in different corners of the drawing-room, one reading Herbert Spencer, while the other devoured Darwin, and ostentatiously ignoring Clarice Dainbrook's little bits of Chopin and dainty old ballads. "'So I should, mother,' answered Victorian cheerily. "'Only I haven't seen any, except Clarice. She's nice enough, but quite impossible to get on with. She's so painfully shy.' "'Her shyness would be got over in a very short time if you'd only talk to her.' "'Oh, I can't talk to a girl when it's uphill work. The women in Vienna are so brilliant, so easy to get on with.' As for your McAllister girls, I would soon converse with a blue book. One of them asked me yesterday morning what we were going to do with Cyprus in the event of Eastern complications. Such a girl as that ought never to be allowed to set foot inside a country house. 
In fact, Oriana is the only agreeable person you have got about you. I have half a mind to propose to Oriana, only I'm afraid there'd be a sparsity of coin." The dowager sighed with a vexed air, but said no more. She had hoped that Lashmar, fresh from the meretricious charms of the fashionable Viennese beauty, would have been struck by Clarice Stainbrook's lily-like loveliness in all its purity of early girlhood. She was only eighteen, divinely fair, with features of most delicate mould, and eyes of heavenly azure. It was hardly possible to imagine a more beautiful girl in that particular style of beauty. There was not a flaw. She was of superior height, exquisitely graceful, with small hands and feet. Whatever coarseness there might have been in the Danebrook mould had been chastened by the judicious union with the Montmorencys. Nobody would ever have suspected Clarice of plebeian origin. And yet her father had coarse, hairy hands, and feet of serviceable breadth, sandy whiskers, and a potato nose. He was an admirable man of business, a liberal master, a staunch friend to the operatives whose labor had created his millions but he had never tried or pretended to be a fine gentleman, though he had been born after his father had made a fortune, and had been educated at Rugby in Oxford. Clarice was very sweet, and Lashmar gradually awakened to an idea of her sweetness. He began to leave his friends in the billiard-room or the smoking-room of an evening, and to sit by the piano listening to those quaint old ballads and those melodious bits plucked here and there out of the heart of a sonata or a symphony. Clarice was one of those musicians by instinct rather than by training, who wander from flower to flower with a sweet capriciousness, stealing the honey out of every blossom. Now a joyous little bit of Mozart, a rondo or a minuet. Now an andante, or an adagio from one of Beethoven's grandest sonatas. Now one of Chopin's wild wailing movements, half a dirge and half a war-cry. What a jolly lot you know!" exclaimed Lashmar. I wish you'd sing Barbara Allen presently. I was outside in the corridor last night when you were singing it. Mill has a passage here which seems exactly to hit our present complications," said Janie McAllister, looking up from her ponderous tome. I do wish you'd let me read it to you, Lord Lashmar. Not for worlds. We should inevitably quarrel if you did. I detest Mill. But surely, at such a crisis as this, I don't care a straw about the crisis. We are always at a crisis. I don't even know what it means. I get dosed with European politics abroad till I am simply imbecile upon all political questions. I want Barbara Allen." Clarice looked up and smiled at him, with her sweet, childish smile. The Miss McAllisters had been far from civil to her, and she did not love them. They resented her inordinate wealth, and disapproved of her beauty. A rich girl had no right to be pretty. Lady Lashmar's favoritism was also an offence. Clarice was petted and flattered while they were only tolerated, they who had cultivated their minds, and were able to enter the arena of argument upon equal terms with the sterner sex. The misfortune was that, at Lashmar Castle, nobody wanted to argue with them, except the foolish cousin whose feeble brain they sometimes deigned to flood with their electric light. 
He, who had never been able to grasp anyone's subject, wondered at the wide range of these well-read damsels, who despised Paley with the contempt of long familiarity, and had Butler's analogy at their fingers' ends, while the Greek Testament was child's play to them, and they were ready at a moment's warning to argue upon any disputed passage. Clarice sang her old ballads, and Lashmar listened in a dreamy silence. Yes, his mother was right. She was a very sweet girl, somewhat over-childish, perhaps, for her eighteen years, but passing lovely. Ermine robes and a coronet would not be too good for that delicate beauty. He wondered whether he was beginning to fall in love with her. He fancied that she would be an easy conquest, for him. That shy and shrinking manner of hers argued a foregone conclusion. She had an awe-stricken way of looking up at him, as if his presence thrilled her. But he held himself in check, and did not mean to commit himself yet a while. They were both young enough to wait. One morning he let the shooters start without him, and strolled across the park and through the fields to the hall, which was about a mile and a half from the castle. He wanted to see Clarice in the bosom of her family, to see whether her surroundings were too terrible, the father too suggestive of the original Barrow. He had seen very little of the Danebrooks in his boyhood. This passion for Clarice was a new craze of her ladyship's. The hall was everything which the castle was not. It had been built five-and-twenty years before in the midst of a level expanse of meadowland, which, during that quarter of a century, had been in process of education into a park. But as there had been very few old trees to begin with, the park was still barren, a waste of level turf with new plantations dotted about at intervals. A fine carriage-drive went from the lodge-gates to the hall-door, assuredly the most uninteresting drive in the county. The hall was an immense red-brick house, in the modern Gothic style, red brick with stone facings. It was a very fine house, well-proportioned, in fairly good taste. But nothing that the architect could do had been enough to subjugate that terrible air of newness which is the bane of such houses. There was a huge battlemented tower, which stared over the surrounding country and could be seen from afar for many miles and there were battlemented stables, and battlemented terraces, and there were acres of well-kept shrubberies, and a fish-pond, and fountains, and spacious conservatories. In a word, there was everything that money could buy. But money cannot buy antiquity, unless it takes the past at second hand. Clarice was very sorry that her father had not bought a dear old crumbly house, in the heart of an overgrown old park instead of building for himself this modern mansion, with all its comfortable appliances, its brand-new luxuries and conveniences, speaking-tubes and lifts, and hot-water-pipes and scientific ventilators. Clarice would rather have had one ghost than all those speaking-tubes. She would have preferred lichen-covered stone walls to hot-water-pipes and ventilators. Clarice fancied the house smelt of newly-made wealth. It had been furnished at one fell swoop by a great London firm, and although the picturesque had been duly considered, it was the modern picturesque, and lacked the mellow tones of real old furniture. Mrs. Danebrook had just come in from her conservatories, where she snipped off the dead leaves and damaged a few of the plants every morning under the delusion that she was helping the head gardener. She was very stout, and could never steer herself through a conservatory without knocking over a pot or two. 
She was a large, placid woman, with small regular features, which must have once been like those of Clarice, but which were now almost submerged in fat. She was very fair, with the lily-like fairness of her daughter, and she had flaxen hair, which her daughter had carried out in a richer and warmer tint of golden brown. The daughter seemed to Lashmar to be a refinement upon the mother. But he told himself that, as the mother was, the daughter might be five-and-twenty years hence. He met his hostess in the hall, and she took him to her morning-room, where Clarice was lolling in an easy-chair by the window, reading a novel, which was about the highest form of literature wherewith the young lady ever nourished her ripening mind. She rose in confusion at sight of Lashmar, as it had been a demigod entering suddenly and the transparent skin was flooded with a lovely blush. "'My mother sent me to ask you over to tennis this afternoon,' said Lashmar, inventing a message on the spur of the moment. "'Oh, but I was going in any case,' faltered Clarice. "'Dear Lady Lashmar asked me last night.' "'She was afraid you would forget all about it to-day.' "'There is no chance of her forgetting,' said the mother. "'She is so fond of Lady Lashmar.' I feel quite jealous sometimes. I hardly see anything of Clarice. But it is so nice for her to be at the castle." Mrs. Danebrook, née Montmorency, had an exaggerated reverence for rank. In the days when she had been a half-pay colonel's daughter, struggling to keep up appearances upon the narrowest means, she had always taken comfort from the thought that she was descended from princes. She had held her head high before lodging-house keepers and small tradesmen, had worn mended gloves and bonnets of doubtful freshness, with a proud complacency which overcame the scorn of middle-class prosperity. And when Providence smiled upon the fresh young charms in the person of the broad-shouldered, sandy-whiskered proprietor of the largest foundry in Brom, who met the young lady at the Stillmington Hunt Ball and fell in love with her on the spot, Viola Montmorency received the advances of the millionaire with the placid dignity of a princess. Another girl in her position, conscious of shabby surroundings and an impecunious father, might have disgusted her admirer by unwise encouragement. Viola stimulated his affection by a sweet reticence, and it was the colonel who brought matters to a head, and anchored the delighted youth. Job Deanbrook had never had occasion to repent his precipitancy. His wife had one of those exquisitely easy tempers, which are perhaps only a refined form of selfishness, but which allow the wheels of daily life to run as upon velvet. Mr. Deanbrook indulged his wife's every whim, but her whims were of the mildest kind, and he had in compensation the privilege of doing exactly what he liked under all circumstances. Danebrook Hall was therefore a kind of earthly paradise, in which the fair young daughter moved like the spirit of youth and gladness, while the mother represented the calm contentment of maturity. While Lashmar was dawdling in the morning-room, turning over a pile of new novels and discussing their contents with Clarice, Mr. Danebrook came in from his model farm, fresh and breezy as the October morning itself and bringing with him that compound odour of pigsty and stable, which hovers about the person of amateur agriculturists, and in which they apparently delight. It was Lord Lashmar's first visit to the hall, 
and he was to job Danebrook as a prey, to be dragged off at once and paraded through hothouses and stables, home farm and paddocks, where the brood-mares and their foals were one of the features of the estate. Lashmar was fond of horses, and did not mind the stables or the brood-mares. He would have submitted even to the piggeries with a good grace if Clarice had been of the party, but Clarice never accompanied her father on these agricultural expeditions. She detested pigs and poultry, cattle-sheds and farmyards. Those pretty little Louis Couture shoes of hers had not been made for tripping over cobbles or across a ploughed field. There was nothing of the typical squire's daughter about her. She never hunted, and she only cared for the one well-trained horse which she was able to ride. She had never handled gun or fishing-rod, and her only idea of a dog was a Russian poodle. So Clarice stayed in the morning-room and went on with her novel, while Lashmar was inspecting horses and cows, pigs and poultry, until, amidst the splendors of a very fine assemblage of Cochin Chinas, he was agreeably startled by the sound of a gigantic gong, which might have been heard half a mile off. "'Lunch!' cried Danebrook. "'Come along, Lord Lashmar. I hope you're as hungry as a hunter after this long round.' "'Upon my word, I think I ought to go back to the castle for luncheon,' said Lashmar dubiously. "'Her ladyship likes to have me when I am not out with the shooters. She'll take it unkindly, perhaps.' "'No, she won't. When you tell her where you've been, her ladyship has been uncommonly friendly to my wife and daughter.' "'Miss Danebrook is my mother's favourite,' replied Lashmar. "'I never knew her take so warmly to any young lady.' and Clarice positively worships Lady Lashmar, quotes her in everything. Nothing is right unless it is modelled upon Lashmar Castle." They went into luncheon, and Lashmar, who had rather despised Clarice for her stay-at-home metropolitan habits, forgave her when he compared her pure and delicate beauty with the bronzed and weather-beaten countenance and roughened hair of the average country-bred damsel. After luncheon, Lashmar proposed that Clarice should walk to the castle with him, and although Mrs. Danebrook would hardly have seen the fitness of such a proposition from a commoner, she was willing to stretch the proprieties just a little for the sake of a noble admirer, and to allow her daughter to stroll across the fields unchaperoned. So Lashmar and Clarice went across those rich Middleshire pastures, as gaily as Phyllis and Strephon, in the sweet half-consciousness of dawning love and were received most graciously by her ladyship. The Miss McAllisters and their mother had driven to meet the shooters, so there was only Ariana at home, and that dear lady always slept for two or three hours after luncheon, a siesta which enabled her to be as fresh as a debutante all the evening, nay, far into the small hours, did pleasure offer itself after midnight. Lashmar and Clarice went off to the tennis-ground, and began a set without delay. The lawn was just under the windows of Lady Lashmar's morning-room, and she looked up from the newspaper every now and then to watch them, pleased at the ripening of her plan. Yes, the fact was obvious. Lashmar was falling in love. No lesser influence than love would have taken him to the hall, he who had always spoken slightingly of the newly rich who detested the magnates and millionaires of Brum. Clarice Danebrook's beauty and sweetness had conquered all his prejudices. Clarice was indeed fair to look upon, 
with the soft curly auburn air fluttering on her low white forehead, and the gracious lines of her figure set off by the soft folds of her fawn-colored Indian silk frock. A frock of elegant simplicity, just short enough to show the pretty little feet in the bronze shoes and fawn-colored stockings, a frock whose Quakerish hue was relieved by a broad sash of Indian red, tied carelessly upon the left hip. The little toque hat was of the same Indian red, subdued yet glowing, and admirably harmonizing with the ivory fairness of the wearer's skin. They played two sets and then went wandering off towards the Italian garden, which was at the other end of the castle, out of Lady Lashmar's ken. It was upon this garden that the late Lord Lashmar's rooms opened. Clarice loitered to look in at one of the windows of the library. "'Oh, what a noble room!' she cried, peering in at the spacious apartment, with its wall of books facing her, crowned at intervals with white marble busts which gleamed in the shadowy interior. The room seemed in half-darkness as seen from the bright clear light of the garden. "'Do you know I have never seen the famous Lashmar Library?' she said, looking back at Lashmar. "'I should so like to see it.' "'Then you shall,' he answered cheerily. Strange that her ladyship should never have taken you in to look at the old books of ours and such like valuable rubbish. But the room has very sad associations for her, on account of my poor brother. He almost spent his life in that room. Yes, I know. How very good and sweet he was! Such a lovely, mournful face! I only saw him two or three times, but I thought him so nice. He spoke so kindly. He had such a beautiful manner. What became of that pretty little dark-eyed girl he adopted? I saw her with him one day. Such an interesting little thing. Oh, she is still here, I believe, somewhere in the housekeeper's quarters," Lashmar answered carelessly. How strange that I have never happened to see her! They went in at a glass door, which opened into the late Lord Lashmar's sitting-room. Nothing in this or any of his rooms had been altered since his death. Her ladyship meant to have a general turnout of everything, and a complete rearrangement of these rooms later on, when the sharp, sad feeling of recent death should have worn away. She was not altogether without feeling upon the subject, although she had always wished for Hubert's early death as the best possible arrangement Providence could make for everybody, dear Hubert himself included. Long life could not be a blessing in his case. He would have only felt his afflicted condition more keenly as the years rolled on. Clarice looked at the room with a mournful, awe-stricken air. It was so simply and prettily furnished. Such charming engravings and photographs of French and German pictures on the walls. Such novel and artistic china and bronzes and quaint little ornaments of all kinds, scattered upon the tables such delightful reading-lamps and reading-easels, such low, luxurious chairs, above all such a snug, home-like air. It was difficult to realize that he by whom these things had all been chosen, whose hand had cut the leaves of yonder magazines with that elephant's tusk, thrown carelessly across the books as if he had flung it there, difficult to realize that he had been lying in his grave for months, and would never look upon that place again. The walls were lined halfway up with dwarf bookcases, and in those were the books of Hubert's own collecting. Clarice thought that some of these were passing dry, 
but that they were on the whole much better than those valuable volumes which Lashmar afterwards showed her in the great library. He showed her the gems of the collection, in a somewhat perfunctory manner, not caring much about them himself, except as heirlooms, which fed his pride of race and place. He was well read for a young man, a keen critic of modern books, had dipped into most things, but he had not the collector's reverence for old books and old bindings. Clarice looked at them with the wide, wondering eyes of perfect ignorance. That shabby little volume in Italian, worth a thousand pounds, just because there were only two of them extant, this and one other. It seemed ridiculous. She had been surprised the other day when her father gave a thousand pounds for an Alderney cow, but the Alderney was at least beautiful, a sleek, pettable creature, with great pathetic eyes, while this little Italian book was distinctly ugly. Her eyes wandered from the book to the room, which was lovely. Those marble busts placed at intervals along the richly carved cornice of the bookcases, the splendor of cut velvet curtains shrouding the windows and making a semi-darkness in the room, the two sculptured fireplaces, lofty and imposing, all these things impressed Clarice. The hall had been built and furnished with a reckless expenditure, and yet there was no room in it that gave this idea of dignity and grandeur. One must begin by being noble before one could have such surroundings, thought Clarice, who worshipped rank. Suddenly, in the midst of her contemplation of the room, she gave a little start and touched Lashmar lightly on the wrist. What is that? she whispered. That was a small, fragile figure, a little girl in a black frock, sitting at the further end of the room, perched high up on a library ladder, reading a big volume, which it was as much as her small hands and thin little arms could do to hold in its place, hugged against her stooping chest. "'By Jove!' exclaimed Lashmar. "'It is the very child you were talking of, poor Hubert's protégé!' And he went to the other end of the room, followed by Clarice, and looked up with a half-amused air at the queer little figure on the stepladder. "'What are you doing up there, Stella?' he asked, not ill-naturedly. The uncanny dark eyes looked down at him, so large, so black in comparison with the small pale face. And then the thin black legs uncoiled themselves from the steps, and the child came down and faced her new master, still hugging the quarto in her lean arms. She stood and faced his lordship and the lovely young lady, looking with those great solemn eyes of hers from one to the other. No longer a Reynolds's child, to be patronized and admired by the dilettante rector. Not by any means a picturesque child in her present apparel. Her ladyship had taken pains to prevent any such foolishness under the new regime. That thick straight fringe of hair, which had given quaintness to the childish face, had been carefully brushed away from the broad bare forehead, by command of her ladyship, who allowed no such meretricious grace as a fringe in any of her dependents. The black stuff frock was made with a Quaker plainness, tight and prim and spare, and a holland apron carried out the idea of dependence and servitude. A very plain child assuredly in her present stage of being. "'What book is that?' asked Lashmar, pointing to the quarto. La Morte d'Arthur, she answered. What? Can you read Old English? Yes. 
My brother taught you, I suppose? Yes. And pray, who gave you leave to come here to read? Nobody. Frank, at any rate. I suppose you know you are doing wrong when you come here. No, she answered doggedly. I don't hurt the books. I am not in anybody's way. Do you suppose her ladyship would approve of your loafing here reading old books instead of learning to be useful? I don't care what her ladyship thinks. I don't care whether I please her or displease her. She has been very unkind to me." "'Oh, but you must not say that,' said Lashmar, waxing stern. "'You have every reason to be grateful to her ladyship. But for her, you would be in the workhouse, perhaps.' "'If she was kind, I should be grateful,' the girl answered resolutely, unabashed, looking at him boldly with those wondrous eyes. She took away all my books, the books Lord Lashmar gave me." The dark eyes filled with tears, which were hurriedly dashed away, as if the child were ashamed of them. "'Poor little thing,' murmured Clarice, and with a pretty pitiful air she patted the pale wet cheek with her soft white hand. But Cinderella shrank from the touch as if she had been stung. "'Don't!' she cried angrily. This last insolence provoked Lashmar's wrath. "'You are a very rude little girl,' he exclaimed, "'and you must never come into this room again. You have no right here, or in any part of the house except the servants' quarters. You will have to be a servant by and by, and you must learn to live contentedly among servants. How did you get into this room? The doors are locked.' "'I came as you came, through the glass door.' You have been here often, I suppose?" Yes, very often. You must never come again. Do you understand?" I understand that you are a cruel man," she answered defiantly, scowling at him, her heart beating tempestuously with fury. I am glad you are only my dear Lord Lashmar's half-brother. If you had been really his brother, I should have been very sorry to hate you. But you are not his brother, and I don't care how much I hate you." She had been yearning for love and pity, thinking that perhaps when the new master came back he would be kind to her for his dead brother's sake. She had been yearning for pity, and yet she had recoiled from Miss Danebrook's gentle touch as if from an adder. "'You are a very horrid little person, as unpleasant as you are ugly,' said Lashmar going to the door and unlocking it, and throwing it wide open. And now, march if you please. Put down that book, and make yourself scarce." She had been hugging the quarto all this time. She laid it slowly down on a table, and as slowly walked out of the room, scowling to the very last. "'I am afraid she is not a nice child,' said Clarice, shaking her head. She is a little demon, a veritable imp of darkness. I think my brother must have liked her on account of her outlandishness." "'Just as some people like a dachshund,' said Clarice. End of chapter 7